0: He was about seven years old. I said, what do you want most in the world? And he said, a bed. And Incredible. I was floored and realized that the child, of course, was homeless and that he was homeless as a result of a deliberate political decision by a government that cared more about getting good headlines in the Daily Mail than it did about human suffering. The South African people, though most of them are not Muslim, uh, uh, worked to present a case of genocide at the International Court of Justice in recent days and stand up, stand up in front of white Western power to bear witness in solidarity with the Palestinian people, not because they're Muslim, but because they know what colonialism is. The things that I had been taught about Palestinians were the kinds of things that people once were taught about Jews. God doesn't care that you fast and bow your bodies and wear white if you still exploit your labourers. There's something deeply unsettling about that world and many people say if they could do it to those children, they could do it to my children too, especially black and brown people all mm-hmm. over the world. And so we realise that this world is basically iniquitous, basically unjust.
1: Barnaby Rain is an intellectual historian writing his PhD at Columbia University. His doctoral research seeks to explain the decline of thinking about the end of capitalism from Marx through to debates in 20th century Britain amid the end of formal empire. He holds a Master's in History from Columbia and a BA in History and Politics from Oxford University. He has broad interest in the history of social theory and modern political thought, the history of the political left and methodological questions in intellectual history as well as the theories of contemporary anti-Semitism. His writing has appeared in The Guardian, N Plus One, and numerous other venues. He's an editor at Salvage Journal and an organiser with the Black Jewish Alliance. He has spoken, written widely on Zionism, anti-Semitism, and Jewish traditions of opposition to both. I'm really pleased to welcome onto our podcast, Barnaby Rain. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Barnaby, that's an amazing a short biography, shall we say, because looking at you, and, and, and obviously I've interacted with you, you're, you're quite, you know, you're still full of zest, you're, you're very, very young. Um, tell us where, where did you grow up? Where, where does your journey begin? It begins in a kind of
0: contradiction um, that I think is, is, is quite common for British Jews, which mm. is that my family came to Britain as working-class migrants from Eastern Europe, from what was then the Russian Empire, the Tsarist Empire before the Russian Revolution, uh, from Russia and uh, what's now Ukraine uh, and Lithuania and and some also from Poland. Mm. Um, And they came... um, Fleeing experiences both of poverty and of persecution, where that neat binary that we're now told to construct between economic migrants and political refugees, uh, as ever, that neat binary didn't really hold. Um, they came here seeking a better life in the face of pogroms, um, uh, which, uh, which burned down Jewish property and terrified Jews, and also in the face of, of bitter poverty, mm-hmm. uh, poverty a which was, of course, itself racialized in part because they were, they were Jewish, they were deprived of opportunity. So they came seeking a better life um, at the turn of the 20th century, and, um, came to Dublin and to Manchester and to okay. London, wow. um, and, um, a- a- and full of aspiration. And, and my, my parents, both my, my, my mother became a doctor and my father became a lawyer because that's what their immigrant descended parents expected of them. Yes. <laughs> um, and, um, and both did very well for themselves were very successful. Um, and so I was growing up in, in that, um, Slightly jarring contradiction between an extremely privileged upbringing in a wealthy part of northwest London, mm-hmm. um, attending very fancy private schools. Um, And then uh, being taken out of those schools for the Jewish holidays Mm. and going on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, to break the fast uh, at the end of the day to uh, my elderly aunt's flat where I would see photos on the wall of her parents and grandparents and great grandparents, even some of the first photos we have in the family, um, um, who looked... Not Western European, with their big beards and yeah. their big hats, and these black and white photos. They look. I mean, a friend of mine, Iranian friend of mine, said they could be Turkish. You know, they they, they look sort of Oriental. Yeah. Um, and that is, of course, how Jews were long constructed in in by racist Europe. Marx was called the Moor uh, as if he was North African because mm. of his dark Jewish colouring. Um, uh, so, so here I was being told that these ancestors of mine were something a little bit different from the world of immense privilege and, and, and wealth in which I was being raised. Wow. Um, and not only that, but here I was also being told that these ancestors had long been maligned and persecuted and hated by that world of privilege and wealth, um, the, 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 where they'd come from in the Russian Empire, the whole state, the church, mm. all of the establishment was organised around their marginalisation and persecution. And then, of course, that 2,000-year history of marginalisation and persecution... Um, Um, uh, culminated in uh, uh, all of the uh, acceptable chattering classes of Germany who just a few years earlier had had tea with their Jewish neighbours, happily attending auctions to buy the pearl necklaces of those Jewish neighbours after they were carted off to Auschwitz. And Mm -hmm. so the lesson, to me, very bluntly, was this wealthy, privileged society in which you're being raised isn't basically a very nice place. It's basically a place that tramples on other people. And you know that as a Jew. And so um, when, as a kid, someone gave me a copy of that beautiful novel for children by Benjamin Zephaniah, Refugee Boy. Yeah. And, and I, I learned what was happening to, to immigrants and to, to, to refugees and asylum seekers in Britain. And then a synagogue near me had a drop-in centre for destitute asylum seekers. Yeah. So I, I turned up as a kid to go and help out because I thought these are people like me, obviously. Like my family came to Britain seeking a better life. These people come to Britain seeking a better life. And they were suffering. Mm. And they were suffering not by some humanitarian accident. There hadn't simply been a flood or an earthquake. These were people who were desperate, who were on the breadline, because Tony Blair's government, supposedly a Labour government, had removed from asylum seekers the right to work while Mm. they were seeking asylum. So these were people who'd been deliberately pushed. A select committee in Parliament said they had been deliberately pushed by political decision into destitution. Mm -hmm. And one day as a kid, I was told to play with the children in this drop-in centre. Um, I, uh, I, I was playing with a kid and I said, um, um, what, what would you like if you could have a special treat?" And he said, a toy car. So I went away and the next month I came back with a toy car wow. and I had it behind my back and I said to him, what do you want most in the world? Do you remember what do you want most in the world? And he looked at me, he was about seven years old. I said, what do you want most in the world? And he said, a bed. Um, And I was flawed and realised that the child, of course, was homeless and that he was homeless as a result of a deliberate political decision by a government that cared more about getting good headlines in the Daily Mail than it did about human suffering. So the lesson that I took, the lesson that I took was systems of wealth and privilege and power don't protect those who suffer. And a huge political lesson then for me was discovering in those Blair years as a child what was happening around Islamophobia and and feeling people are discriminated against just as my people were and so I have a duty to, to be on the side of the oppressed and not the oppressor.
1: Wow that's that's quite a young age though isn't it to be most people at that age are probably thinking of other things enjoying themselves probably going out with their friends uh, maybe getting into sports what was it like for you as a as a <laughs> leave the politics to one side let's talk about <laughs> you know your I don't know your social ah, social life uh, uh, you know other other things that you were doing maybe with your family your you, obviously your parents were very very um, well to do professionals but uh, what sort of you know, made you tick?
0: Well, um, you know, I, (laughs) um, I admit that I was never much into sports. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I claim that as a, I claim that as a Jewish right. There's, a, there's an interview that I find really funny where some CNN correspondent who doesn't really know what they're doing is interviewing people who've left the Hasidic world, sort of yes, the Orthodox yes. Jewish world. Yeah, yeah. And the, the former Hasidim are trying to explain to this journalist that they've just come out of a completely different kind of universe. Yeah. And they say to the journalist, you have to understand there were whole words we didn't know. Abortion, evolution, gymnasium. And the correspondent kind of pauses in confusion at gymnasium and they say, yeah, we're Jews, we're reading, we're studying, you know, we'd have to go to the gym. So, um, so, you know, I I can't claim that I was playing sport as a kid, Um, (laughs) but, um, uh, but when I reached the age where, uh, where there were, where there were girls around, then I had a thing to focus on that wasn't (laughs) politics. I'll definitely say that 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 has
1: continued to be the case. We can understand that. Uh, (laughs) But moving on to your sort of your next, the next iteration in your life, obviously, I can see social justice or, or justice as, it, as a whole for, for people who you felt were disadvantaged or marginalised, I suppose. Um, how did you then go from feeling about this thing to then trying to do something about them? Was that before you went on to uh, what is a very distinguished uh, academic sort of career, if you will? Or was it? well before that. So, for example, when you were a teenager, is that when you were thinking about that or was it after you went to university?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the urgent imperative, if you think that carnage is taking place all over the world, and if you know from the history books that many people was silent or passive or thought they couldn't do anything, and that's often how carnage took place, yeah. um, not just the actions of, of, of those seeking to do ill, but the silence of the good or the complicity yeah. or the, the passivity of the good, um, then you feel a kind of moral imperative. As a young person, uh, you feel a kind of very stark moral imperative to try to push the needle um, of history, uh, you know, Martin Luther wow. King famously said the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. Well, you, 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 you feel a pull to try to do some of that bending mm. work, a pull which is deeply, deeply um, uh, um, uh, cemented by a sense of your own history if you come from a people who have been maligned and who have needed others to stand up for them and with them. You know, Lenin said in Russia, uh, a good trade unionist goes on strike for higher pay, but a real revolutionary goes on strike to stop a pogrom against Jews down the road. That sense that we need others to stand with us. Certainly motored me. And so when I was about 14 years old, I started volunteering with the Stop the War Coalition, helped set up okay. School Students Against the War, which had been active in 2003 in the Iraq War. Um, and, and, and we were trying to sort of refound it um, with the support of the leadership of, of Stop the War. So I was, I was very active from that. First, I was doing work all around refugees and migration. Yeah. Then I was very supportive of, um, of Liberty, the, the group that was campaigning against attacks on civil liberties under the, the, the Blair and Brown governments. Um, and that was the thing that really concerned me. Um, and, and then became active uh, in organising protests against the war in Afghanistan. And so did all of that before I really could face the question that now occupies me so much, which is the question of Palestine, because I felt so conflicted, uh, because on the one hand, I, I felt a kind of call of justice of an oppressed people, and on the other hand, all the loyalties to family and community. And so before I could face that question, I was actually doing lots of other
1: things. So 14, I mean, I, I remember at 14, I wasn't organising protests and rallies, certainly not. But um, but you were, and you were obviously then mixing with quite intellectual people who probably saw, hold on, there's a talented young boy here that um, could develop into something uh, a lot more, you know, uh, will continue the fight for the next generation. Do you think from 14 up to when you normally go to university, which is what, 18? those four years, were they the seminal four years of what made you Barnaby Reign today? Or was it after you went into university?
0: Well, you know, I'm not an essentialist, so I don't believe that we have a kind of deep core. This is actually a very... uh, uh, a secular thing for me to say. I'm, I'm supposed to believe that I have a neshama, a soul from God. That's the, that's the Jewish claim. And that soul is, of course, constant. Yeah. Uh, but really, I think that that we are only the products of our being, of our, of our of our processes of coming to be in the world, rather yeah. than having any singular essence. So I, I don't like to think that there's some moment in which I was made. It's, it's, okay. all, it's all changing all the time. But certainly the striking thing about that period is that I was in this very uh, elite private school, um, uh, uh, with a very, very narrow crowd of people, sociologically speaking. Yeah. I remember at one point, there was a documentary made about our school and, and the kind of, the, the ludicrous privilege in it. And the students were up in arms about um, how, how, how they could be. They felt personally attacked. Of course, they weren't being personally attacked. The facts of, of privilege are objective social facts. They're not the fault of the individual. Um, but, um, but they felt personally affronted. Mm-hmm. And they came to me, a lot of those students, as if I was sort of the culprit because I was the sort of troublemaker. Um, so I was long known as a troublemaker in the school. At one point, the queen came to visit our school to unveil a statue yeah. and I tried to release a banner that said the school should be spending money on, on bursaries for poorer students if they wanted to spend that money not on statues for monarchs uh, and so I was escorted off the well, school ground. Well that's exactly it isn't it? Yeah, I mean, how, many, how many crazy. kids do say it's, that you know? You know well, so I was escorted <laughs> I, I found some other little, little mini comrades to do it with me and I was escorted off the school grounds. I used to go um, uh, because my school was right next to Parliament yeah. I used to go uh, to the peace camp opposite Parliament. One of the reasons as a kid yeah, i excited remember. to go to that school was to visit this peace camp and I became really close to Brian Hoare the, the protester course, who was yeah. there. Yeah. yeah, so yeah. much so that my, I, I was in a school performance, a school play of Animal Farm, uh, George Orwell's novel that had been adapted, and Brian came in his full, in his in his hat and his full kind of regalia. Yeah. and he, he came to watch me in, in Animal Farm. So so I used to go down there to talk to him um, uh, and so so i was i was a i was a troublemaker at school when I, the, the student movement happened in 2010 the opposition to the trebling of tuition fees and yeah, the cutting yeah. of education maintenance allowance and, and and i became involved very very involved in campaigning and 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 was, was got into all sorts of trouble from the school for for for, for walking out of lessons and and um uh, and and missing a day of school in, in yeah. the streets not i didn't actually choose to miss a day of school the police kettled us the police kept us in the street for hours more than i i knew they would um um, and actually, interestingly, the headmaster of that school, a very kind of conservative figure who found me very strange, I think, um, uh, at one point, you know, he, he had this very grand office up a sort of marble staircase or something, and I was summoned there. And the whole space was designed to intimidate and humiliate. It's very important for people to recognise that mm. much of how the British ruling class works mm. is by um, uh, their paper tigers, as someone once said. So, so they, they project an image of immense grandeur do, in yeah. ways that don't require Actual strength and force—that is to say, we can build a very big marble staircase and have you terrified at it. It's a little like how the Israelis project an image of immense grandeur by bombing from the skies, mm. because they know they're not—they're not actually that good at fighting on the ground. So, so they, they use this immense uh, uh, physical aesthetic grandeur. I was marched up this staircase. And I've often thought that one of my advantages is because I come from that background. Yes. I know these people are a bit hollow and empty in their claims to, uh, to superiority. That one of the things that distresses me is friends of mine who don't come from those backgrounds, who find it hard to kick that internalised sense mm. that someone with a voice a bit like mine, to be honest, uh, knows what they're talking about and, and uh, just by virtue of having that accent and that they should be treated with respect. This is how Boris Johnson has made his entire career. Yeah, right? Course, yeah. so, so I remember being marched into this office... And, um, and, and the headmaster said to me, you know, I have here a, a copy of first edition of John Locke's Letter Concerning Toleration. Uh, you know, this was supposed to wow and dazzle and impress me um, while he was disciplining me for taking part in a protest. And I just said, you know, it doesn't, doesn't really matter to me because Locke wanted toleration for different kinds of Protestants. He definitely didn't want toleration for me as a Jew. Mm. Uh, and the headmaster didn't even know that because the substance was less important than the fact that this was a text that was hundreds of years old. And um, So... So I was growing up in that atmosphere of kind of kind of peeling back the layers of the emptiness of the British ruling class with its claims to superiority and at the same time getting involved in politics quite separately from that school setting yeah. where I was meeting people who were giving me an extraordinary political education, people who came from in Britain, the tradition of the Socialist Workers Party and yes. this very particular left tradition that had been set up in fact by a Jew born in Palestine in 1917 yeah. who'd left Palestine in part because he was so uh, opposed to, to the racism of Zionism that he saw around him. And so here was an organisation that had so much Jewishness in its in its culture, actually, and and all the kinds of Jewishness that excited me, which were which were tapping into to Jewish radical traditions yeah. um, that weren't just Jewish, but were about making links to others and fighting for a better world for everyone. And. Okay. And so as a teenager, I had be, be, you know, people who were, who were still very politically active and, 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 um, and, and leading campaigns today who were telling me, uh, uh, I remember someone telling me, you know, you have to read George Lukács, the Hungarian Marxist when I was about 14 or 15. And so I went away and I went online and I, I read all about Lukács and people telling me how to understand what dialectics was. And so I was getting all this education outside the school setting, yeah. which I was then bringing into the school setting in order to, to, to better be able to have a sense of the emptiness and the intellectual paucity of mm. this place that understood itself as, as the best school in the country they used to see on some league table, uh, and of course I could see they may have been the richest, um, but but the intellectual standards were, were far less significant in fact, than their cultural proclamation of grandeur. Raymond Williams, the great cultural radical, talks in very beautiful lyrical terms about how he left Tony Pandy, his working class community in Wales, yeah. and went to Cambridge University, and was told that he was going to find culture, and in fact found Cambridge in many ways less cultured, more boorish, more nasty, more brutal, than the cultures of solidarity and community he knew back home. Absolutely, yeah. And he realised that all that culture meant to these people was that... Um, I still feel this today when I teach undergraduates, that if you, if you speak and write in a certain way, that's called cultured. If you carry yourself in a certain way, if you dress in a certain way, if you, if you know certain references, mm. uh, if you know to tittle and to laugh at certain moments in conversation, all of these things, in fact, are the cultural norms of a certain class, which by virtue of the hegemony of that class, the power and domination of that class, are projected as as, as, as what it is to be cultured what it is to be civilised so that everyone else with their different cultures uh, um, is, is called uncivilised and that's something that I learned very profoundly when I was in this school that thought of itself as superior to everything and everyone else um, and in fact I was finding in socialist organising outside the school that there were much richer and deeper intellectual lessons I was learning yeah. from people who because they didn't have the same accents or wear the same clothes would be dismissed and demeaned by what was ultimately actually always a very insecure form of power that needed to defend itself in those kinds of empty terms.
1: You must have made your parents really proud.
0: <laughs> I gave my parents a lot of trouble. I gave my parents a lot of trouble.
1: Tell us about the Rain household. How many uh, of you were there?
0: Um, well, that you know, that's a, that's a complicated one. My mother um, um, has been motivated her whole life by a certain kind of passion. Uh, for justice, she uh, was instructed by her parents to become a doctor, and so she did. But she was keen at the first opportunity to go and do something she felt was really socially useful. And she, of course, being a medic, is amazingly socially useful. But she went and, and into public health, and she has spent her life trying to fight inequalities in, in healthcare in Britain. And, okay. and and I'm I'm very very proud of her. Um, um, and uh, you, you know, m- my dad, in some sense, the less I say, the better. I have to be careful because he has made choices. Um, uh, that I often have disagreed with um, uh, very deeply and, and, and sometimes seeing the ways that he's made those choices, the pained ways that he's made those choices, has been one of the things that's motivated me um, uh, politically um, because I have, uh, I have watched the way that the search... This is a very classic kind of immigrant story, actually, that you believe two things at once and believing these two things at once is quite painful. You believe both that... Um, the British ruling class doesn't really like you very much. Mm. So my parents, I think, have fewer illusions than lots of Jews now trying to assimilate. Because racialization works by having different... Fanon has this this, this marvellous kind of uh, 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 distinction he draws. you know, He says negrophobia works by saying, for example, the black man is very sexually voracious and is going to prey on white women. Mm. Antisemitism works by saying the Jew is very greedy and is going to steal all our money. And he says both of these are ways that the wider society takes its anxieties about itself and projects them in order to try to get rid of them onto a pure Image of a, of a, of a subject that, that concentrates all of those anxieties. So, white society fears it's, knows that it is sexually aggressive and dominant, says it's just the black man that does that. White society knows that it is greedy and money grabbing, says it's just the Jews who do that. Yeah. So, different anxieties get projected onto different kinds of people. And so, um, my parents always knew that ruling class British society in private, in quiet, after the Holocaust, you can't be so open about these things. So you both know that the British ruling class doesn't like you very much. And on the other hand, you believe that the only route to a kind of successful life... The only thing that will make you feel that you've done anything worthwhile is by winning the approval of those people who you know really hate you and who you know whose approval you know will always be elusive. And that bind, I think, yeah, yeah. was very much in my family in their attempts at social mobility. Um, but it seems,
1: yeah. it seems, Barnaby, you almost just broke out of that and said i'm not accepting this
0: well in part because you know i was an unhappy child i had uh, a very, very strained and, and difficult sometimes relations with family um and i thought this way of living which is silent about various kinds of abuses um uh, because you want to get on and be comfortable and have a decent life yeah just not something that i think ever works um uh, I don't think it is the way to a comfortable life. Um, and I don't think it's acceptable even if it did work. Um, and, I, you know, so I, so the forms of violence and brutality that uh, one has to shut one's eyes to if you want to get on in British society and achieve that elusive respectability just seem to me not worth it and not
1: acceptable in any case. I was just about to say, is it really worth it? And I think you've just said yourself that, that it wasn't. So, okay, you, you've broken out of this. You've gone into university, undergraduate, then obviously you've done incredible academia at various institutes uh universities obviously tell us how those years were
0: um i had a very exciting time at university you know i um, uh, I got to Oxford which I had applied to precisely because I was in the bind of seeking respectability and it yeah. was the thing to do and my parents would have been devastated certainly if I, <laughs> if I hadn't um, and so um, I deliberately picked a college in Oxford that was known to have fewer people from fancy private schools like mine than almost any other college and that was the reason that I chose that <laughs> one. Which was one's that? that? It's called Wadham and it's by far the best college in Oxford and they it's could? where everyone who wants to apply to Oxford should apply to um, um, and the story goes that in the 1960s they re- the students renamed one of the quads which is the kind of beautiful green squares in Oxford colleges the students renamed one of the Wadham quads Ho Chi Minh quad um, and, um, and in the, I think in the 80s, I guess, um, uh, after the specials came out with their great song, Free Nelson Mandela, yeah. the student union in my college passed a resolution that every student party, which takes place once every two weeks, uh, would end with a rendition of Free Nelson Mandela. And they did this while Mandela was in prison. And very beautifully, when Mandela was released from prison and did his tour of the world, he made sure to visit those places and those people who had given him support. And he infuriated the American administration by saying, I'm going to go to Cuba because they actually supported me. And he came to Warden. He came to my college, which was this place that had um, that had that had sung in support of his freedom. And when he died, I was there at Wadham, and and it was I think early. It was about five a.m. or something. We heard the news, and we all kind of poured out in our pajamas into the um in into the square. So I went to a, I, I tried to find those little corners that had decent histories. Yeah, 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 yeah. But actually, when I was there, I had the most amazing set of experiences. Um, it was actually the first time that I met Palestinians. Wow. Um, okay. And and started doing organising. We had this beautiful uh, uh, sort of festival, Israeli. Party week, where we brought the most amazing series of people. Uh, We had Avi Schleim, the great historian at Oxford, and so got to know him well. We also would bring Ilan Pape, the great historian. But also, figures like, for example, Dennis Goldberg, who was tried alongside Nelson Mandela at the Rivonia trial in South Africa, and talked very movingly about how, in the brutality of racial separation, he wasn't able to touch his comrades, his fellow prisoners, because he, as a Jew, uh, a Jewish South African, was was in a separate segregated prison uh, from Mandela. Um, uh, And so getting to meet him uh, 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 and sit over shisha and dinner with him um, uh, was was a remarkable thing, and so I, I learned so much yeah. um, through the political organizing work that I was doing at Oxford um, of all kinds of things. We had big campaigns against tuition fees. We had big campaigns against the prevent agenda in higher education. Um, but the, the the Palestine organizing was particularly inspiring, um, not least because. Um, um, it, it, it made me realise the scale of the dehumanisation upon which power relies, mm. which is to say it's very important for Zionists really to believe that Palestinians are, uh, are, are terrifying people full of hate, because if you don't believe that, you can't possibly justify uh, acts of violence and aggression against them, and to realise that um, other societies premised on domination had done the same thing, to realise that in apartheid South Africa, mm. in a striking moment in, um, in, in, in the memoir of Donald Woods, the liberal South African journalist, he talks about visiting Kruger, the, the, the brutal fascist police minister in apartheid South Africa. And Kruger had on his wall pictures of Africana settlers in South Africa in concentration camps that the British had put them in. And had the stories, genuine, genuine stories of historical victimization of his people, were crucial in order to sustain a sense that all of the world was driven to hate this struggling Boer Africana people in South Africa. And therefore, they had to dominate others because if they didn't dominate others, those others would burn them out of their own homes. Yeah. That logic of paranoia is, of course, was deeply ingrained in the Zionist reading of Jewish history, we've always been targeted and, lo- and, and loathed, so we must kill others before they kill us. And so to meet Palestinians and find that the dominated, the dispossessed, the oppressed were able sometimes, not universally, because oppression is not uh, always an educative experience. It can make us nastier and, and, and more scared people. Zionism is, is, a, is a story of that. Those to whom evil is done do evil in return. Primo Levi, the great Holocaust survivor, said Auschwitz was not a university. People shouldn't mm. be surprised that those who suffer do terrible things. But to find in the in, in the left-wing uh, radical Palestinian that I met, um, that it was possible to generalise from an experience of one's own oppression, not to hate Jews, but to seek a world in which everyone everywhere can be free. That lesson was so powerful to me because I'd been given at my bar mitzvah Leon Uris' Exodus, that Zionist propaganda novel, and had been taught all of these terrifying things about Palestinians. And I gradually came to realise that The things that I had been taught about Palestinians were the kinds of things that people once were taught about Jews. Mm. And that the radicalism of left-wing Palestinians who generalised from their own experience of oppression to seek a world without oppression for anyone was exactly the same kind of political tradition as the one that had earlier inspired me in Jewish reactions to anti-Semitism that sought not a Jewish state so that we would be safe while others were dispossessed, but sought instead to respond to anti-Semitism by seeking to get rid of racism for everyone everywhere.
1: You talk a lot about the Jewish faith or... Your Jewish faith, because what people need to understand, and I always try and tell people, look, uh, there are so many different varieties and forms and expressions of Jewishness. Tell us about your one. Huh? Um,
0: let me tell a story from a long time ago. Um, the one of the central codifiers, perhaps the central architect. Of what became rabbinic Judaism, what is today Judaism, normative Judaism, um, was Maimonides, who yes. ben Maimon, who we call the Rambam, um, uh, one of the greatest Talmudists, and um, and he he's he's the he's the person who. Um, who systematized uh, our religious text into 613 commandments, um, starting with principles of Jewish faith. And, and, and my favorite, the one that means most to me, is the penultimate one, which goes, I believe with full faith in the coming of the Messiah. And even though he tarries, I await his arrival with every day. That idea central to Judaism, yeah. that what it is to be the chosen people is not to be a master race who have extra rights, but is to be a people who've made a covenant with God to take on extra obligations. I was saying to you just before we came on air, Gentiles have to obey seven commandments, Jews have to obey 613, um, extra obligations. Why? In order to do the work of bringing about the coming of the Messiah, which will mean universal emancipation for everyone. So that idea, a particular group, Jews, who must do the work so that everyone may be free, that's a special obligation. Converts can choose that obligation if they wish, but we're not going out asking people to. Um, um, Maimonides is the person who formulates so much, systematises that sense of Orthodox Judaism. Um, Maimonides was also a great doctor, and he was, of course, the personal physician to Salahuddin, Saladin. He was, yeah. Um, And so when I see today the Zionist state bombing Salahuddin Avenue in Gaza, Mm. I see a terrifying um, uh, 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 reminiscence with that crusading spirit, which long ago brought European power, Christian power um, uh, to that part of the world in order to massacre and attack the indigenous inhabitants for the safety and security of Europe. And the tragedy that I see now is that European power, which has always had its different ways for using and maligning Jews, mm. has decided that its latest way for using and maligning Jews is to have what Winston Churchill once described as a little Jewish ulster, that is to say, to do what they did by planting settlers in Ireland, what the Brits did, to do the same thing in Palestine. Their latest way of using and maligning Jews is to put us uh, in in the fortress in the middle of the wilderness, as the colonist sees it, um, to put us as the policeman for empire so that when uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser seeks to nationalise the Suez Canal, mm. uh, the Brit- Britain and France invade and they can get the new state of Israel, the young state of Israel to invade with them. Their latest way of using Jews is to, make, is to put us in the front line of the defence of empire. Um, people often think that Israel controls America. It's much more accurate to see it the other way round. Right? They, 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 they use us as the, the, the front lines of empire and if the cost of that, if the cost of that is that Jews all over the world are less safe because people all over the world um, react to this Jewish state and its violence um, uh, disgracefully, and of course I'm involved in trying to oppose this, by drawing anti-Semitic conclusions, then imperial power is quite casual about that. In fact, it can be useful, because if synagogues are attacked, then you can depict uh, all anti-colonial, anti-imperialist politics as, as, as a kind of nasty shades of, of, of something bigoted. Um, so so, so the, the Jewish history that I'm loyal to... Mm is the history of a people who were for 2,000 years excluded and persecuted by a thing called Western civilization. Western civilization was honed on the basis that its other was those people, Jews, who had killed God and, and Jesus. And... And um, where Zionism represents an attempt to uh, assimilate into Western civilization and prove that we can, do, we can do it just as well as every other settler colonist uh, who's brutalized and butchered from the Americas to Africa to Asia. Um, uh, the Jewish tradition I'm loyal to is a very, very different one. And it's the tradition that saw Maimonides uh, mm. siding with Salahuddin um, against the Crusades rather than those Jews who today would join the Crusades.
1: What was the reaction from those around you, those close to you, perhaps family, perhaps, perhaps friends, who didn't quite see the world in the way you've just described it?
0: Um, well, I, I, for many years, had very, very difficult conversations with my parents um, and with my wider family. Um, um, and my parents have been on, a, on, on an amazing kind of journey through lots of arguments and discussions with me. Um, you know, my mother talks about going on a kibbutz as a, as a yes. young student and being taught that Israel, you know, I was taught that Israel the only democracy in the Middle East. Back in the day, my mother was taught, Israel was the only socialist democracy in the Middle East. You know, it was a society in which much of the economy was nationalised, mm. in which there was an idealism about the kibbutz model, which in fact was always dependent on cheap labour being done by Palestinians, um, separately from the utopian image of, a, of an egalitarian community. Um, but that was the image that was very powerful for Jews, for whom, you know, my grandmother, um, uh, as a child, watched the facts of the Holocaust emerge. And then the children from Bergen-Belsen, the Nazi extermination yeah. camp, came Uh, to Britain, some children, and she played after school with these emaciated children, barely more than skin and bone. And she remembers, as a child, watching that and then seeing the proclamation of the State of Israel and thinking, finally, we have some safety, Mm. and then seeing people turn on it and thinking, what's new here? They've always hated Jews, and of course they hate us when we have safety. And so the work of disentangling that perception has been a very profound work. Um, The work of trying to persuade people that... um, uh, that, that, that in fact though, though the Jewishness of the state is extremely important to them as Zionists, the Jewishness of the state is not what's most important to Palestinians who would object to being occupied and colonised by anyone whatever their religion but more than that, to persuade people that in our Jewish traditions we have so many resources for opposition mm. to this basically very, as I see it, very goyish, very un-Jewish project of seeking to turn us into European statesmen uh, Jews were always outside part of the great tradition of Jewish radicalism is that we were outside that system of nation-states um uh which which defined its borders and then oppressed and occupied and colonized others and we can find opposition um not only in the moment of exodus where where moses chooses to identify as a jew uh by seeing someone beating up a slave and 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 confronting that slave driver and killing him with his bare hands we're not very christian we don't turn the other cheek Um, Uh, so not only did we have great moments of of, of liberation uh, struggle as Jews which told us to be on the side of the oppressed, when we recite, every year when we recite in Jewish families the story of the exodus um, on the Seder night we say, so you shall not oppress a stranger for you were once a stranger in a strange land. Land, We also have the stories of our prophets who came to warn Jews um, not to oppress and exploit others so we don't only have stories of us as victims but as perpetrators too we have every year on Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year in synagogue, we read Isaiah. Um, The great prophet Isaiah telling the Jews of his time who were fasting and wearing white and bowing their bodies in submission to God, all the things that we do today. And Isaiah says to them, this is not enough. God doesn't care that you fast and bow your bodies and wear white if you still exploit your labourers. He said you should let the oppressed and the prisoners go free. So we have great religious traditions of opposition to those projects which would say in an unsafe and scary world, let's try and win some safety for us, some privilege and prosperity for us by dominating others. I can understand very deeply why that's appealing. I can understand very deeply why people who faced thousands of years of persecution want a little bit of safety. Some people tragically came out of the concentration camps and went to apartheid South Africa and were happily citizens of an apartheid state. Others went to Palestine and said, look, we're done trying to be nice to others. Jews in Europe tried to construct socialist societies and their millions. And what happened to them? They ended up in gas chambers. It's time we now look after ourselves. I understand the appeal of that. But I want people to understand that also in our traditions, in our long Jewish traditions, from Moses to Isaiah to secular traditions, like Mm. Marx, who takes this idea of a a chosen people who are chosen not because they're very special and wonderful, but because they have a special role to play in bringing about universal emancipation. That's how Marx thinks about the working class. We have so many traditions, Jewish, religious and secular, um, uh, that, that, that teach us that we can access our histories and our cultures and our languages for nobler
1: things than the work of domination. So, when you've then finished your studies i suppose and you're now moving on to the next stage in your life you've obviously got these views which of i think that makes you you the person you are i think you take those you know you take that out and the essence of you doesn't exist because i can see it just 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 how you speak and your dynamic and and everything that comes off you is about how passionate you are almost to say I know what Judaism is and it's not what I see around me. It's not what I see in your reactions to being persecuted for centuries and and nobody should ever underscore how bad that persecution was, what Jews went through in Europe. But in trying to get, like you said, to to persuade others that actually this is not the reaction that we should have, did you find that you were... in terms of certainly the, the Jewish community that you were speaking to, um, unable to get through. And, and that's why you just perhaps went as mainstream as you c- could, I suppose, to say, well, look, this is how it is. And I'm just going to pursue this line of thought. And I'm going to say it at every occasion, make sure that it's, it hits home, whether you listen to me or others listen to me, it's going to be my sort of mantra now.
0: Well, one thing that I'm always trying to do, um, you know, if I was better at being more religious, I would just want to be a rabbi. <laughs> so, so one thing that I'm always trying to do, really, yeah. is is to speak to um, other Jews. Not because I think that Jews are better than anyone else, uh, but because I think that um, we all have a different role to play. There's a great Yiddish term, tachlis. There's a great essay by a, a, a great 20th century rabbi about this concept that I find very meaningful, tachlis, which means uh, purpose. Yeah. Um, uh, that we, we, we all, for those who believe in God, we all are given by, we say HaKodesh Baruch in Judaism, by God, um, um, a, a purpose to fulfill in in the world, and we have to work out the specific thing that we can do. And I I feel um, uh, uh, more able, perhaps, than many of my non-Jewish friends to do the work that I think is really important of speaking to young Jews Mm. and saying... um, uh, you don't have to choose between loyalty to your people and traditions and loyalty to things that you know to be your better instincts. So you don't have to feel awkwardly uncomfortable about coming on a demonstration for Palestine yeah. and worrying that everyone there might be anti-Semitic because those are the paranoias with which you've been raised. Of course, You've been raised being told that the appearance of the Palestinian flag is the latest form taken by the swastika. Right? You don't have to, have to feel that terror and try still to be good and try still to, to, to sign a petition or turn up on a demonstration feeling very anxious and conflicted. In fact, you can feel that in turning up on that demonstration. You are you are loyal to the spirit of Isaiah. <laughs> you yeah, are loyal okay. to the spirit of our finest traditions, That's which powerful. often in the prophetic tradition were opposed to the majority of Very Jews. Powerful. You know, in the Hanukkah story that we tell, when an indigenous colonized population in historic Palestine... I feel um, it.
1: I feel, um, I'm not uh, Jewish, but no, I feel yeah.
0: it. I mean, think about this. In, in the Hanukkah story, where we celebrate the resistance of a colonized population, the armed struggle, resistance of a colonized population to a colonizer, mm. it's not the case that all of the Jews in Palestine at that moment supported the resistance. The point is that most of of them had become assimilated and normalized to greek colonial norms yeah. and a small fanatical minority said actually we we believe in an idea yeah. of freedom and god stood with them so so i want jews to feel that they can put, be in touch with our finest traditions because i i i've known the pain and i've been through and worked through the pain of feeling a conflict between one's community one's peoplehood and and a kind of universalism that wants freedom for everyone and the beautiful kind of dialectic between the particular and the universal in judaism mm. is it said yes, we're a particular people, but our goal is to bring about universal redemption, tikkun olam, to mend the world. Um, and, and we pray three times a day in the Amidah, we pray uh, for the coming of the Messiah to redeem the whole world and not just us. And so that, that sense that we have a have a, have a special uh, role to play in liberating the world needn't be articulated religiously. You needn't believe that everyone who's born to a Jewish mother has some specialness. I certainly don't think that Bibi Netanyahu um, it will be very easy to redeem, though I think that everyone, everyone in the world is capable <laughs> Of, of redemption, redemption um, yeah. um, but um, uh, but you can believe you can have a, a broader understanding of that sense that there's something beautiful about taking on the work of trying to free humanity alongside and with others whom you love and care about and whose oppression you care about so it's certainly true that i'm always trying to um, to reach out and speak to jews and these last few months have been extraordinary because we've had huge jewish blocks on all the demonstrations yep. in new york In the heartlands of empire, Jews have scrambled across the Statue of Liberty to drape their bodies over it, scrambled into driveways for senators and congressmen to to, to drape their bodies in front of their cars to say there's a genocide taking place and we will call it out. When we were talking earlier about elite institutions, when Harvard University tries to stifle and silence its mostly Arab pro-Palestinian students, Jewish students occupied a building at Harvard and said, we're putting our bodies on the line to support our Palestinian brothers and sisters. They stand in the finest Jewish traditions and we have seen an explosion and effervescence in recent months of Jews breaking mm. with, um, with, with traditions of domination that claim to speak in the name of Jews and Jews recognizing, and this is why this is so politically important, Jews recognizing the Zionist state, when it can't defend its violence on its own terms, defends its violence by using Jews around the world as its shield, by, by putting us in the front line of defense and saying, if you hate us, you hate Jews. They put, they put our Jewish symbols on everything. They put the Star of David on everything they do and uh, even on their flag. Um, they claim, of course, to be the nation of the Jewish people, and so they they they, they do that in part in order to, um, to to treat us as a shield. Where if they're attacked, they can accuse their critics of anti-Semitism because no one wants to be, no one decent wants to be of an course. anti-Semite. And so it's very important for Jews to recognise that we can refuse that blackmail and say instead that we have finer, nobler traditions, and in our hundreds, indeed in our thousands. Um, uh, there was a we had a, a big Shabbos dinner, a big Friday night dinner um, uh, 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 of, of lovely radical Jews. And we're going to organise another one soon as well. So we've opened up spaces of Jewish identity um, that are making a lot of Zionists worry that they're losing the younger
1: generation. It seems that way. We've covered the demonstrations uh, extensively. And I think the most powerful moments in those demonstrations when the rallies take place or when Jewish speakers take the microphone, and they speak, and I've seen it, the crowd goes silent. A little bit of awkwardness at the beginning, not anymore, because there's been so many rallies now. And, And when they speak, and obviously people listen, and then the applause happens. The applause and the warmth that they receive is much more so than perhaps the Muslim speakers or the those on the left, you know, railing against what the Israeli government's doing. And I spoke to one particular uh, uh, Jewish friend now, I suppose, um, Jewish Voices for Labour. And he, 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 he said, I didn't notice. And I said, well, what you didn't notice is, for someone like me, a non-Jew, a Muslim, Supports the Palestinians all his life. To see a Jewish person doing that, it's almost like, wow, it's liberating for me. When people say the liberation for the Palestinians is not about a battle between Muslims and Jews, it's actually a battle for justice. Is that what we need to do collectively to say to people, take the religion out of it because it's not a fight between religions? It's about an entity which claims to be Jewish and a people who are native to that land. But how do you do that? Because it's very difficult. And I'll tell you, I'll find, I'll, I'll finish by saying, for example, your father, your mother, who you, you love, obviously, because they're your family or your friend who perhaps is, feels that he needs or she needs to be loyal to Israel because it, it does stand for a form of Judaism or protecting the Jews. How do you square that if you're if you're a Jewish uh, protester, I suppose not 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 Barnaby rain because Barnaby rain, I know will do it quite well well it
0: is it is an old trick of colonial power to um, communicate facts of social domination as facts of cultural difference. Mm -hmm. That is to say, in order to legitimate the expropriation and dispossession of literally millions and millions of people all over the world, you construct a story in which those people are more savage and backward than you. And so, Mm -hmm. in fact, you're helping them by bringing them into civilization, or, in fact, they don't even deserve to live because they haven't yet been baptised into Christianity in the the first uh, uh, colonial experiments in the Americas. Um, So it's very important to colonial power to... To distract from the brutal facts of domination mm. with stories that uh, act as window dressing for domination by um, uh, by painting the others as as culturally different from you, and so the idea um, in the post Cold War world that we inhabit a clash of civilizations, and that the difference yeah, that matters is between a liberal, enlightened West that 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 is tolerant of of different identities and a savage, backward Muslim world that uh, that that wants to behead people for their sexual choices and so on Um, that narrative is so important as a recent iteration of a long standing colonial rendition in which the domination of others is legitimated by painting them as backward and savage and one of the really remarkable post Holocaust novelties is that Western Christian Europe which for so long persecuted Jews now now, um, uh, constructs uh, the other, the, the Muslim other and indeed the other from across the global south often as savage and backward precisely by saying these people hate Jews so that Jews become the kind of protected minority of Western civilization, um, much like the role played by white women in the the narratives of the Jim Crow South in America, right? where in order to lynch black men, you would say um, they are violent rapists who threaten white women. And so power defends itself by claiming that its power is not oppressive, but protective. You need muscles and strength and guns and swords in order to protect innocent, vulnerable people who would be hunted by the savage hordes. That's how patriarchal power defends itself. It claims to be Protecting women and children when, in fact, it's a threat to them, and that's how colonial power defends itself. It claims to be protecting minorities who would be attacked by these uncouth, savage hordes. So we should recognise the framing from the West of Palestine as a religious conflict, which we see all over the place. The claim that Western politicians might be Definitely. worried because they have Muslim voters, right? We should recognise that framing as, as one iteration of a long-standing colonial type. Now, of course, it's also true that lots of Muslims feel strongly about Palestine because they're Muslim. And I think one thing that we have to defend, and even, they'll blame Jews. Well, let's, let's get to that. Let's exactly get to that. I would just say, I, I think we should not malign people whose politics follows from a sense of religious conviction. That's not always a bad thing. That's completely legitimate. But do you see where um, my... Where but my, I understand your question is very issue. important. Yeah, yeah. So let's get to that. It's a brilliant question. It's, very, it's, it's a great... You're exactly right. So, um, so, so defining the, 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 the struggle in Palestine in, as a religious conflict allows you to say the problem is Jews. Now, of course, it's a, um, it's a strange framing, not least because Palestine has always been importantly multi-religious... And much of the leadership of the Palestinian revolution, certainly in the 60s, 70s period, was actually forged by Palestinian Christians, people like George Habash. Yes. So so it, it's, it's, an, it's an inappropriate framing historically to think that this has only been a Muslim issue. But of course, lots of Muslims feel profoundly about, uh, about Palestine. But it's really important... Um, to recognise that as well as being deeply politically um, uh, destructive and damaging and uh, offensive um, uh, to uh, to attack people on the basis of their ethnicity, religion or culture and to think that doing so is anti-colonial, um, that it mirrors Zionism. Zionism uh, which says we want to I keep see. Jews safe and therefore we hate these indigenous people. It mirrors that to say we want to keep Palestinians safe and therefore we hate all Jews. It's the same kind of bitter, paranoid, miserable logic that we have to fight. I always say I oppose Zionism Incredible. and anti-Semitism for exactly the same reason, Incredible. because I want people everywhere to be free. Um, so, uh, and so my opposition to anti-Semitism is not tempered by my opposition to Zionism. My opposition to anti-Semitism is fueled and deepened by my opposition to Zionism. I want everyone everywhere to be free. So as well as being deeply damaging, one should recognise that this is to follow the distorted framings of imperial power, which says, this wow. is a Jewish state for the Jews, wow. blame the Jews for the things that the Jews do there, rather than saying, this is part of a, this is, yes, a settler colonial state, and it's Jewish settler colonists who, who, who brutalise Palestinians, and that's at just... Uh, empirically the case but it's also part of a network of wider imperial power in which it is sustained and defended by the United States by Britain um, uh, first by Britain then overwhelmingly by the United States and so to think that the problem is simply Israelis is to miss a wider global picture and is to allow a relatively moderate politics which might say okay I want to get rid of the Zionist state which seems very radical in Britain but doesn't seem very radical in Jordan or Syria or Egypt of course we want to get rid of this Zionist state which has ethnically cleansed over 700 Palestinians in 1948 uh, 700,000 and is now carrying out a genocide. Of course, we want to get rid of that state, but it, but that needn't challenge our wider politics. No, that's not what I think. I think that the Zionist state exists and is sustained as an outgrowth of a global system of domination, which is racialized in order to allow people to drown in the Mediterranean just because they want a safe life in Europe, and is also racialized in the much broader sense that in order to ensure money and wealth flows to Europe and North America, millions, billions of people all over the world are dominated and subjugated. And I oppose Zionism as a representation of that much broader reality of colonial power, which was known to South Africans and to Algerians and to the Vietnamese and that's why it's not just Muslims who pour onto the streets of Britain and it's not just Muslims who terrify in the pro-Palestine movement the real thing that terrifies our political leadership is that it's populations from all over the world who once were colonised, whether that's Indians or Caribbeans or sub-Saharan Africans, people who know what it is to be coded, to be marked out for a smaller package of rights by colonial power, they know how that feels they recognise what the Palestinian people are going through and that's why the South African people, though most of them are not Muslim, uh, uh, were to present a case of genocide at the international court of justice in recent days and stand up stand up in front of white western power to bear witness in solidarity with the palestinian people not because they're muslim but because they know what colonialism is they know what apartheid is and and that i think is what terrifies our political leadership i'll i'll, I'll finish on this no, i know no, i'm please. going on too long a, a right-wing uh, former immigration minister in britain robert jenrick gave a very interesting interview where he was asked, in his classic kind of dog whistle, race-baiting way, uh, he had said that multiculturalism had failed, right? And he was asked what he meant by that, and he said, look at the streets of London in recent weeks. Mm. So his evidence that multiculturalism had failed was that there were many people protesting for Palestine, and many of those people were black and brown, right? And I think we should take that very seriously because what he meant was, he said those people on the streets don't have British values. Mm-hmm. And he's right. We don't have his British values because the values of the British state, the values of the British ruling class for hundreds of years have been about expropriation and domination, right? Marx wrote this beautiful article about the Duchess of Sutherland and slavery, where he said the British aristocracy has no right to condemn slavery in North America in the American Civil War because they were the people who drove peasants off their land in Scotland and, in, and across England in order to create workers for their industrial revolution. So the British ruling class was founded on expropriation. They did it here at home, and that's why the coalitions I want to build include many people here at home, many people who are white and are from Britain, who know what it is to oppose domination and subjugation. And the British ruling class then took that domination all over the world, not just the British ruling class, but all colonial capitalist classes. Um, um, Robert Jenrick is loyal to those values as a a servant of the British state, a former immigration minister, and he recognises that on the streets of London, we have many millions of people who are not loyal to those values, who instead have values of human freedom. Mm -hmm. And they have them because they're Muslim and they feel pain at the of fellow Muslims. They are colonised and they feel pain at the suffering of those who are colonised. They're human beings who want human beings to be free. There are many of us Jews who know what it is to be persecuted and maligned and will tolerate it for no one. And that spirit of universal freedom makes us a fifth column here in Britain that opposes all of the values of our own ruling class and stands instead with the people of South Africa who who confront the Israeli state in the courts. With the people of Yemen who refuse to allow a genocide to take place without challenging it. um, With people all over the world who believe in human freedom and we're building those kinds of coalitions. So it's not a religious politics. It's not about Muslims versus Jews. It's about people who want human freedom versus those who who, who believe in, in domination. And many Jews, and, and people should know this and understand this, many Jews will find it extremely difficult to see things in those terms because, because, because for many Jews... Uh, we instead begin with a story about our persecution, which is an anxious story, which says that right from the days of Pharaoh in Egypt, when Jews got to Egypt, Joseph was made Pharaoh's prime minister. And a generation later, we were slaves. In Weimar, Germany, Jews did better than anywhere else. And a generation later, less than a generation later, we were in gas chambers. So it's an anxious story of persecution that worries that unless Jews have safety um, uh, uh, in a garrison state, um, we'll always be at risk. But my politics says the only meaningful safety, the only meaningful safety, and it's a hard sell, and it's a hard thing to win, very hard. The only meaningful safety for anyone comes through safety for all of us, freedom for all of us. You can't carve out some safety for yourself by dispossessing others. They won't have it. Uh, Israel is today the least safe place for Jews to be in the world, and Jews all over the world are less safe because Israeli violence um, uh, helps to propagate anti-Semitism. Now, I-, I think that even if Israel did keep Jews safe, it wouldn't be acceptable because it dispossesses Palestinians. I don't think that anti-Semites are excused by saying that Israel motivates them. but. Um, But it is just a deep and sad truth that even on its own terms, Zionism has failed because
1: you can't win safety by dispossessing others. That was so powerful, Barnaby. Honestly, it was really powerful. I think those of uh, our viewers that are going to be watching this, they really need to replay this section again. (laughs) And especially my question, because that is such a deep question for people like me who hear, not so much now as I used to hear, I must add that, where... We, were, we would other those that we felt were the causes of our oppression. Um, Muslims have this um, theory about ummah, where if there's pain happening in another part of the ummah, this part of the ummah would feel it. And, and that's where the pain of Palestine permeates everybody. Everybody. Um, from Africa to Asia to Europe to wherever they are in the world, that pain is always there, uh, and it doesn't take much for it to to manifest itself into extreme acts. And I think many many of us feel that the reaction to that shouldn't be more extremism. And I think you've put that in a really succinct way. Yeah,
0: I mean, I mean, let me take a great example uh, that always inspires me, which is the life of Malcolm X. Yeah. So uh, as a young man, he achieved enormous fame uh by uh his loyalty to the nation of islam um, at which point malcolm x believed um that white people were a distinctive race of devils that it was essential yeah. to their whiteness that they were devils um and he was very socially conservative in all kinds of ways um, and he sought uh, separation um the nation of islam even sometimes appeared on platforms with the kkk did, uh, yeah. because uh because they were both segregationists um he sought separation of the races um and and he did so thinking that it was to be loyal to a form of Islam. Now, it's a form of Islam that the vast majority of Muslims would, would not recognize as mainstream. Um, but, but, but he called himself a Muslim and he thought that his religious principles uh, led him to see basic essential. You remember earlier I said I'm not an essentialist. Yeah. Um, uh, he thought that his religion led him to see essential differences between people. White and black people were created different by God. Um, and so uh, he saw, and, and, and this was not an unreasonable position insofar as, you know, the Field Sisters have this beautiful book, Racecraft. Uh, about racism in America, in which they make this argument that racism has a certain kind of logic to it, it's most—it's actually the most obvious reading of a set of basic social facts. If you're a white person in America, you see um, uh, uh, all the differences between black and white people in terms of levels of employment and incarceration yeah. and crime and all these things. Um, and so you—and so the easiest explanation is to say if you're a white person, or maybe black people are just inferior. If you're a black person in America and you see white people consistently attacking you and demeaning you and denying you, Stokely Carmichael Kwame Ture once said, every piece of civil rights yeah. legislation in America was passed for white people, not black people. Black people didn't need to be told they could drink a drinking fountain and go into a restaurant. White people needed to be told that they should let us <laughs> in. So if you see white people consistently degrading you, it's the easiest explanation to say there must be something wrong with their blood, mm. right? The remarkable thing is that, inspired by his Hajj, by his pilgrimage to Mecca, Malcolm X um, uh, transformed and, and, and came at the end of his life to a very, very different view. Very. Which said there are social processes, structures of power that happen behind the backs of us processes in which we're all entangled that dominate all of us and that code us into different positions in a hierarchy so rather than it being the case that white people are born evil and and, and, and dominant and god created in that way which is a simpler explanation um um, the facts of capitalism and imperialism um, slot some white people in America into a different position in the hierarchy than black people mm. so, that, so that a few may profit. Um, rather than Jews uh, having centuries-long conspiracies to, 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 to destroy Muslims, um, Western power found it useful to plant Jews in West Asia in a colonial state. And so we're all differently victimized. We're all differently racialized. Just like, you know, uh, uh, patriarchy is not simply a problem of uh, men being evil and hating women. But, but all of us suffering from facts of gender that alienate us from each other, divide us from from our common humanity, from what Marx called our free individuality, to just be individuals, Mm. um, uh, which we can't be in a world where we're racialized and gendered and classed. Um, So all of us are dominated by those things in different ways and to very different degrees. And therefore, the amazing thing that opens up, the amazing thing, is a politics of universal human freedom that says we want to free even the dominators. Ahed Tamimi, the great Palestinian activist, says, I'm more free than the Israeli settler kid who carries a gun because that settler kid is terrified of our Palestinian neighbors. I'm not, I'm free because I'm a freedom fighter. So it's a politics that wants to free everybody from our paranoias and from our degradation and from our humiliation, and that recognises the enemy not as reducible to any individual soul, but to social structures that dominate all of us. And that's not a question of becoming more moderate. You know, today, radicalization is a terrifying term which, which, which is taken to mean becoming a jihadi. right? Whatever. Malcolm X appeared at the Oxford Union in the middle of his last, tragically cut short, last years of, of, of what I would regard as his real radicalization, And he was asked to debate a, um, a line from Barry Goldwater, the right-wing Republican nominee for the American presidency, um, uh, that um, extremism in the defence of liberty is no virtue Um, and uh, uh, sorry extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice and moderation in the pursuit of justice is no virtue and they expected Malcolm X to oppose this claim from a right-wing Republican Malcolm X said no I support those lines I just mean something very different by it to Barry Goldwater, and he gave this defense of extremism, which is not the extremism that wants to blow people up in the street just for being born the way they were born, but the extremism that wants to turn the whole world upside down. You know, that image of medieval feasts where peasants would have this day where they turned the world upside down, and peasants were kings for a day. We don't just want it to be for a day. We want those who are dispossessed and dominated to be free forever. And that is the most enormous transformation in the world. And one of the reasons that framings of conflicts as religious or as ethnic are more appealing to people is actually because they're more moderate. Because it's easier, if you're Hizb Tahrir, to imagine that there are a few Jews that you have to get rid of from a small corner of the world and that's the problem and then everything's fine and then you'll have your Umman and, and you'll, you'll reestablish the caliphate. That's easier to imagine actually than to think that there are massive social structures of race, mm. gender, class, empire, which we have to overturn in order to make the world completely different. It's, it's a more much radical more, proposition.
1: Yeah, and it's much more, much more bigger. Look, but I wanted to just bring it back onto the conflict taking place right now. I sometimes feel, am I, am I, do, am I using the wrong terminology conflict how can you call this a conflict but let's just use that term for the purposes of moving this uh, debate on to its conclusion it's been three months of, of incessant bombing and, and Palestinians being pushed from one corner of Gaza to the other corner of Gaza 24,000 I think are confirmed dead another eight to 10,000 are missing Israel stands in the dock at the ICJ Uh, People are up in arms. There is a peace camp that is trying to do things. I know a rally in Tel Aviv was banned by the Israeli police. Uh, People are speaking out, Jews, Muslims, Christians, people of faith and non-faith. When we come back to our next edition with you, where do you want the world to be in terms of this? You know, we had the bombings of the Houthi rebels just happened yesterday. Where do you see or where do you hope, realistically that the world should land at to say, right, now we can change things in whichever way.
0: You know, one of the illusions of liberal politics that I was taught as an undergraduate at Oxford is that one ought to begin from abstract pictures of justice, okay. what the good would look like, um, and, um, and then simply try to enact them, which is a way that you can think if you're used to having lots of power at your disposal and you, you, you begin with an idea of the good and then you just uh, pass it through the states that you control. Radical politics has worked through quite a different path historically. It's worked by beginning not from its abstract visions of the good, Mm. but by identifying subjects, people, agents, people whose oppressive experiences of the world, often in a a patchwork of different ways, bring them together into coalitions seeking uh, better kinds of worlds. And the visions of better worlds that develop then follow from the particular needs, the particular experiences, the particular hopes, aspirations, fears, doubts, um, urgent, uh, requirements of those people. And the thing that I think has been inspiring about recent months has been to witness the beginnings of the coming together of a global coalition for human freedom, which is pitted against the continuing domination of Western imperial power, which that God is in decline. And so, um, uh, although I hold out no candle for the Chinese state, um, or for the Russian state, um, um, and, and hope that all of those states, just like the state in Britain and, and America, are, are one day blown away by a kind of universal freedom. Um, um, I think that the uh, the, the, te- the, te- the tectonic plates on centuries of Western imperial domination are shifting um, uh, with the decline of American imperial power and the isolation um, of of Israel and its supporters in from what 's genuinely an, a, a proper international community. Yeah. If it actually represents most of the world and um, and I think that the um, that's why the uh, challenge to normalization deals between Israel and its Arab neighbors is so important. Netanyahu's plan for a new Middle East that he presented at the United Nations, where he showed a map from the river to the sea of Palestine called Israel, apparently from the river to the sea is completely unacceptable as a slogan uh, if it comes from the dispossessed and means universal human freedom, but it's totally okay as an image if it comes from the colonizer. Mm. Um, So Netanyahu presented a map of Palestine from the river to the sea with Palestine uh, obliterated and just Israel. And And then it was happily located in a network of regional allies often uh, brutal dictatorships kept in place by American uh, military support. Um, So the work to undo that regional picture... The road to Jerusalem, it used to be said, runs through Cairo. To to undo that regional picture, um, uh, and that's why it's been so inspiring to see huge protests in Amman, to see in Cairo people reaching Tahrir Square, the Square mm. of Freedom, for the first time since the revolution. The work of undoing the regional picture, the work of putting back together Palestinian opposition to their colonisation, um, which is hindered by the fragmentation the Israelis have achieved in the anti-colonial movement um, through uh, the, the Palestinian Authority acting as a kind of broker of complicity and security coordination with the coloniser in the West Bank. So the work of putting back together. Palestinian resistance as a unified um, um, uh, a force, uh, putting back together regional opposition to the Zionist state, seeing the decline of Western power as an opening. Um, and then within the heartlands of empire, within the belly of the beast, seeing that hundreds of thousands of us come out onto the streets in support of the Palestinians, that to me is a little bit like the age of riots in the 1830s before the development of modern socialist politics in Europe, which is to say, we know that we're angry and we know that we are mm. uh, disgruntled with a world of domination and we know that we believe in freedom. And Palestine has been a kind of lightning rod for many people all over the world to say this world is not basically just. This is a world in which thousands and thousands of children can be bombed from the skies in refugee camps. They can flee because they're told to flee and then they bomb while they're, fle- they're bombed while they're fleeing. There's something deeply unsettling about that world and many people say if they could do it to those children they could do it to my children too, especially black and brown people all Mm -hmm. over the world. And so we realise that this world is basically iniquitous basically unjust and we come out onto the streets and organise for a world that is basically just and free instead. And I think those coalitions are beginning to be built now and if radical politics always emerges from the construction of its subject one of the ways that neoliberal power has worked in the last 50 years has been to smash those radical subjects. Why did they have to destroy the miners in Britain? It wasn't because mines were economic they'd have destroyed the farms for that reason it was because miners had been that key protagonist in the struggle for a better world in britain setting up the labor party organizing the general strike bringing down a tory government in the 1970s why do they have to destroy anti-colonial politics it was because the new international economic order in the 70s represented that apex of peoples in the majority of the world saying we actually want real sovereignty which doesn't just mean we have our flag on our government buildings it means we control our resources Mm. for the first time since we were colonized so neoliberal power in the last 50 years has been a big counter-revolution against the hopes of the 1960s and 70s, in which the Palestinian revolution played a central role. And what we're now trying to do is put back together the coalitions of hope against that long night of counter-revolution in which we've been living for 50 years.
1: Barnaby Rain, that was uh, an education for me. And um, I'm pretty sure our viewers will be uh, will become much more informed about exactly what's going on as opposed to what they think is going on it's been a real pleasure thank you for coming on thank you so much for having me it's been great so that was our podcast with Barnaby Rain. you can see how uh, how much of an intellectual giant he really is Uh, his explanations were not uh, small short they were quite detailed and it's in that detail that we find out who he really is and what he believes in and actually what we all should take lessons from I'm Maz Patel, thank you for joining me on this podcast and I hope we'll be back with Barnaby for more in future. We'll certainly bring more podcasts. Take care.